Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com. From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, why horrible photos from Uvalde and other mass shootings are being published. Extreme violence that took place, but they really look like war zones. Despite what the Supreme Court ruled, homosexuality is still against the law in Texas. And as long as it's on the books, there is the chance it can still be used. And how the new Texas Show Me Your Papers law is going to impact the state. This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. When reporters scramble to cover the latest mass shooting, we don't always put every awful thing that we encounter into our stories. We've been trained to hold back the most gruesome details. There is an editorial process along with standards and practices that tells us to hold back, keep some of those worst details and the stuff of nightmares out of our stories. We do this to protect the public, and one could argue that the press isn't doing a very good job of protecting the public because these mass shootings keep happening, and maybe holding back on covering them is the problem. Maybe if people knew how incredibly awful and terrible these scenes were, maybe they would do more to prevent the next one. The Washington Post is putting that question to the test. This week, the Post published an investigation into AR-15s and their role in mass shootings, titled Terror on Repeat, a rare look at the devastation caused by AR-15 shootings. The article includes a number of graphic photos from the scene at Robb Elementary, including images of classrooms covered in blood and a hallway filled with body bags. To tell us more about this reporting project and the process behind it, I'm joined by Washington Post national reporter Sylvia Foster-Frau and senior national investigations editor Peter Walston. We've been uh, examining the rise of the AR-15 as a phenomenon in America, um, uh, both as a, a political symbol, extremely popular weapon uh, for a lot of reasons, um, uh, but also its destructive power uh, over the course of this year. And uh, we published a story um, back in March that got a lot of attention called The Blast Effect, uh, which showed using animations how bullets fired by AR-15s uh, decimate the human body. Um, and that story got a lot of response, but among the responses were a lot of comments from readers that, um, you know, this is really interesting, uh, and eye-opening, but, but isn't there more to show? Why aren't you showing the pictures? Why aren't you showing what really happens at these, at these shootings? And, and it's true that the, the media tends not to publish graphic images, uh, for a variety of reasons in part, because we don't have access to crime scenes to document them, but also because we don't want to dehumanize victims and uh, it's, it's very hard for the families. It's, tra- it's re-traumatizing for the families. Um, it can be when these, pu- when these pictures are published. Uh, so we put a lot of thought, we, we spent about six or seven months um, uh, thinking it through and uh, looking at images. We put out dozens of uh, public records requests around the country to see what sorts of uh, crime scene photos we could get just to see what they looked like. 
we uh sylvia and other reporters uh gathered uh videos uh and uh other comments on social media they they looked through investigative files um and we really had to make a decision you know is there more to the story here and and after months of, of research after sylvia and and the other reporters on this project um uh immersed themselves in every and all the material that's out there that we could that we could find um we decided there is more to the story you know that it was a revelation to us uh what these crime scenes looked like the extreme violence that took place these aren't just shooting sure. that many americans might see in the movies but uh but they really look like war zones and sylvia in your reporting on this project i'm sure there's even more grim and gruesome things that were still being left out how did y'all decide what to put in there is a balance, right, that you have to achieve between being sensitive and humanizing to victims and their families, while also trying to show Americans the war zones, essentially, that are happening in our own backyard. And so we spoke to advocates and experts and families and survivors to try to get a sense of where that line was. And what we really kind of came to discover is that what was most impacting to us in the videos and images and even the stories that we heard was the juxtaposition from these everyday places that all of us know so well. The movie theaters, the churches, the schools, the malls that we go to on the weekends, seeing these places completely destroyed by this AR-15 and that level of destruction in these places that we all recognize so well uh, was incredibly powerful and we felt like that was really the kind of message and the the type of understanding and information we wanted to get out to the public i was looking at a comment section of a story just the other day and someone was or they were arguing going back and forth about how these shootings weren't that bad that oh the parents really didn't identify the kids by their tennis shoes that's all made up when you release these photographs does that put an end to these people who are kind of like deniers of how bad it really was, Peter? I doubt we'll ever be able to put an end to that sort of uh, commentary, the, the deniers uh, and, and people who refuse to acknowledge reality. I, I, I doubt people who hold those views are going to see a story in the Washington Post <laughs> um, and be convinced. But but I do think that for the vast majority of, of Americans uh, who, who are more thoughtful uh, than that, um, I, I think this is going to advance their understanding of these uh, crime scenes. I think people just don't have any way of knowing how extremely violent they really are and how much damage is done. They don't think about what happens when uh, hundreds of bullets are fired in such a short period of time. The fact that so many people can be killed and wounded in just a matter of seconds or minutes. Now, yesterday, the families of Uvalde filed a lawsuit against the Texas Department of Public Safety regarding the release of these photos to the Washington Post. They are complaining that they released these photos selectively to the Post. Uh, these photos should have been released to the public uh, at large a, a, a long time ago. And the excuses that the DPS has, has used in the past that, um, that they couldn't release these photographs were obviously not true because they released them to the Post. So first of all, um, Sylvia, do you, can you tell me if these pictures were actually released by the DPS or were they leaked to the Post? 
Yeah, thank you for asking that, David. They were not released by DPS to the post. They were leaked to us through a source, and that is how we obtained them. DPS did not give us um, those images. And I, I know that that has been an issue with the community who has wanted to see a lot more than they have been able to see. Um, and me the media has also, you know, had an issue with Texas um, DPS not releasing information about what happened that day. Um, but uh, to repeat, DPS did not give us those. We obtained them through a source. Now, the uh, families in Uvalde, um, it's been a kind of a rocky relationship with the press about covering the, the shooting. Uh, the press first released the video of the hallway scene uh, before the families were able to view that. And they uh, were upset about that. How is it today? How how did you work with the families in Uvalde to work to deliver the story and still be mindful of their sensibilities, Peter? Uh, well, we have a reporter, uh, um, Arlise Hernandez, who who has covered that the that shooting and the aftermath extensively, and has spoken with um, the families and and knows many of them. And you know, we took an extraordinary step in advance of the publication of this story, we notified the community in advance. Uh, we notified uh, all the communities that were impacted by the 11 mass shootings that are covered in this story. You know, that's just not something we typically do. Um, we we don't talk about stories before they publish, but in this case, we made an exception because it was part of an ongoing effort um, to balance uh, what we believe is the, is the journalistic obligation to advance the public's understanding uh, of the destructive power of these weapons, but to balance that with the uh, the our desire to be sensitive uh, to the families, and uh, and and it's hard to strike that balance. Uh, I believe we we did it, but notifying them in advance was a big part of that. And thanks to us uh, doing that with these communities, you know, with the Uvalde uh, school district was able to send a note out um, and and warn people that it was coming. Um, uh, the families were able to stay stay away from the story if they wanted to. Uh, they many chose not to look at it and not to share it, um, and 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 we th we thought that was a very important step to take. Looking at these photographs, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Emmett Till and uh, the Chicago youth who was beaten to death when he was uh, in the South for allegedly and misreportedly uh, whistling at a white woman, and his mother insisted on an open casket in those photos of him being published in a national magazine and how that was considered to be something that helped spark a, a civil rights movement. I know the objective for a newspapers and reporting is not to do social engineering, but uh, Peter, do you think that the publishing of grim, gruesome, uh, don't hold back photographs is a way to actually get people to realize and maybe take action about gun violence in America? I don't know. Um, I, obviously, we we talked a lot about and have heard a lot about um, the the power that images can have. Certainly, the Emmett Till um, uh, story is is one of those. Um, I, I just you know that wasn't our goal in this story. I mean, we really felt like we wanted to first determine whether there was more to tell about the about these mass shootings and and whether there was more context we could bring to this issue. Uh, and once we determined that there was, then we decided what would be the most effective way to tell this story while also um, balancing, as I said earlier, the need to be sensitive to the communities and to the families. 
Um, that was really our goal. Um, you know, how, you know, we, we do think that our, our role, frankly, in a democracy is to bring the information to people, to empower people with information. Um, if that leads uh, readers and lawmakers and others to make change based on the information we provide, um, that's great. But but our role is to bring is to bring this information out to decide if there's new information, a new perspectives, new context to bring to an issue. And if, and if so, to do that and then, you know, let events play out from there. Sylvia Foster Frau is the national reporter for The Washington Post. Peter Walston is the Post senior national investigations editor. They're part of a team behind the article Terror on Repeat, a rare look at the devastation caused by AR-15 shootings. It's been 20 years since the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Lawrence v. Texas that state laws banning homosexuality were unconstitutional. It was a 6-3 decision, and it remains controversial still today. Yet the law in Texas, the penal code that makes sodomy a crime, remains on the books. It has not been revoked despite multiple efforts by Democrats in the state legislature. And just because the law isn't constitutional and isn't enforced doesn't mean it's inert. It still looms large as a threat against the state's LGBTQ plus community. KXAN reporter Josh Hinkle explores the legacy and the continued impact of the state's anti-sodomy law in the investigation project Outlaw. Well, during the legislative session, you know, it was hard to ignore the record number of uh, proposals that were coming out of the state capitol that would restrict the LGBTQ plus community in Texas. Um, in the midst of all of that, this bill that would have repealed the state's unconstitutional ban on homosexual conduct um, all stuck out to us, um, kind of as differing point from everything else we were seeing related to this community. So we really started looking into that um, several months ago. And when we were doing that, we were finding that this bill was being brought up in testimony and in conversations surrounding some of these other policies, almost paving the way for some of the modern day proposals that we were seeing. So that's really what got us started on this and a very deep historic look at it and also who's been influencing the opposition to repealing this law um, in recent years. Some people would say, hey, uh, this law doesn't matter. It's uh, it's on the books, but it's unenforceable. Uh, this 21.06 in the penal code, uh, why even worry about it if it's been declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court and cannot be enforced? Well, it's still on the books. And as long as it's on the books, there is the chance, you know, many people will say that uh, it can still be used to discriminate against the LGBTQ plus community in Texas. And that's what we saw when we were putting together these stories. Um, oh, there were there was testimony about this. Um, you know, people were being discriminated when it came to housing. Um, some people were being wrongfully arrested. Uh, it's unenforceable, but sometimes we were finding police were still using this law, not understanding that it is no longer able to be used. And so that sometimes that cost cities money because they had to face lawsuits after that. 
Um, so it is still being used, just not the way it was initially intended. And you do mention in the coverage, it's, it was described as a as an unused whip. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Um, Dale Carpenter, who is a constitutional professor in uh, at at uh, Southern Methodist University in the Dallas area, he is an expert on the state's ban on homosexual conduct. Has written a book called Flagrant Conduct, and he, in his interview, called this law an unused whip. Basically, it's on the books. It's just laying there, waiting to be picked back up. Say, if the U.S. Supreme Court ever decides to revisit this law and reverse its decision, it could be put back into place. While many states that did have a similar law years ago when the Supreme Court declared this unconstitutional did end up taking it off of their books, Texas is one of three states that still has it on its books. So if the Supreme Court ever decided to reverse course, the law would essentially go right back into effect and it could uh, be used just like it was before the Supreme Court decision. That's not far-fetched. Justice Clarence Thomas has signaled that he would be willing to overturn Lawrence v. Texas. Also, he'd be willing to make contraception illegal again as well. So, and we saw what happened with the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. So progress won could be progress lost. Yes, that's exactly right. I think many people are fearful about that. And uh, this this law goes back 50 years to 1973 before, you know, Texas had a sodomy law all since 1860 where it banned sodomy for anyone. But lawmakers in 1973 singled out uh, gay sex. So this law was used really to target a very specific population that has only grown in Texas since 1973. So you can understand why that community is worried that this could go back into effect someday. When I talk to uh, young adults, uh, people who are in the newsroom, and I'll tell them about the bad old days, and they have a hard time recognizing or dealing with the fact that we used to live in a world where uh, this law was in effect, was being enforced, and was um, something that people had to worry about, especially if you were a, a, a gay person, you know, if you were beat up at the coming out of the gay club, or if you had some sort of altercation, you couldn't turn to the police because of this law. Yes, it's not just about the criminalization of homosexual conduct. It's the stigma that this law brings, that being homosexual, that being gay, that being in the LGBTQ plus community is bad, is wrong, is something immoral. And that really sticks. And it follows this community around. And it's because of policies like this that many people that have in this story, uh, you'll find, have said is exactly what's happening still today. Josh Hinkle is KXAN-TV Austin, Director of Investigations and Innovation. The KXAN Investigations team's latest project is Outlaw, a half-century criminalizing LGBTQ plus Texans. This week, the Texas House of Representatives passed one of the most controversial and strictest immigration laws in the country. It'll have major implications for migrants and anyone who appears to be a migrant in the state. It's called SB4, but it's also being called the Texas Show Me Your Papers law, since one of the most controversial aspects of the bill, 
allows local and state law enforcement officials to arrest someone they suspect unlawfully crossed into Texas. The bill also creates two new state crimes for migrants who entered or re-entered the state illegally from another country, punishable with up to two years in prison. SB4 is creating fears in Texas that it's going to lead to widespread racial profiling. Congressman Greg Kassar, a Democrat representing parts of San Antonio and Austin, says this law is unconstitutional. Greg Abbott's law would tell our local police in places like San Antonio to stop working on addressing violence, to stop working on solving crime, and instead ask police to hunt down Texans who look like immigrants. That's not public safety. That's not what our police officers want us to do. That's not what everyday people in San Antonio and across Texas want our local police doing because we're a mixed community of people from all sorts of backgrounds and sending police to say that it's now their job to hunt down immigrants is really not what everyday folks are asking for. They want to see public schools improve. They want to see our roads fixed. They want to see us tackle the climate crisis. They want to see us address the mental health crisis. And instead, Greg Abbott wants to distract from those issues and his go-to is always to go and blame immigrants and beat up immigrants so that people don't pay attention to the fact that he's not working on anything else. Now, how does this law actually going to work? What, what it proposes, in the way it's written, is it says that certified peace officers can ask people to if they're uh, if they're in the country legally, if they even if suspect that they're not in the country legally, that they can uh, arrest them. And they can actually take them uh, to the bridge uh, with Mexico and, and make them go back into Mexico? It, the law is not going to work because, one, it's so clearly unconstitutional. Unfortunately, Greg Abbott doesn't seem to mind blatantly violating the United States Constitution. Second, it's not going to work because how are police officers supposed to objectively suspect whether someone has papers or not? We know that in our community, you have all sorts of folks with different immigration statuses because we've had this failure to pass comprehensive immigration reform. So how are police even supposed to do that? And then why, in God's name, would anybody in San Antonio want police officers spending over two hours driving down to Laredo when we have issues that we need addressed here at home? And so it's not going to work. It doesn't make any sense for public safety, and it's unconstitutional, which is why I, alongside other members of Congress, are asking the Biden Department of Justice to intervene and block this unconstitutional law that makes us less safe, that's all about racial profiling and pandering to a far-right extreme base instead of actually addressing the stuff we need in San Antonio. Now, it also says anyone who crosses into Texas without authorization is now breaking state law, and this gives the uh, Texas troopers and deputies and whoever else uh, opportunities to arrest these people. Would they be arresting asylum seekers even before they have an opportunity to ask for asylum? This law takes Greg Abbott's anti-immigrant, anti-asylum seeker hysteria to a whole nother level. I think it's important for folks in the community to know that we established the asylum system after World War II, after people were being turned away from America who were fleeing the Holocaust and fleeing war. And we said we need a better system than that because we can't be sending people back to their death. So we set up the asylum system where people can come to this country and ask for asylum and go through a legal process to find out whether they are allowed to stay or not. What Governor Abbott 
is essentially saying is we're going to throw out the asylum laws that we built after the Holocaust. We're going to say the writ, the inn is full. Sorry, we're turning you around. And it doesn't matter whether you're fleeing death. It doesn't matter if you've applied legally. It doesn't matter whether you technically are a fully legal immigrant. He's saying that, you know, essentially a state trooper could just turn someone away. And that's in violation, not just of our values, but of federal law and of the Constitution. And so that's why this law needs to be blocked, not just because it does real harm to the community, but because it it it, it doesn't work. It undoes essentially decades of asylum law that we put together because of the horrors of the past. During the debate in the state legislature about this SB4, we heard uh, quite a bit from uh, the Republican side continuing to claim that the border situation is all President Biden's fault, that he allowed this uh, border crisis to happen, that Biden wants open borders. Uh, They have a a particular set of lines that they use trying to blame this on President Biden. So what's your response to that? No matter what President Biden does, every single day in the Congress, we hear from Republican officials blaming Biden for anything they can, anything they can. You know, if somebody wakes up on the wrong side of the bed, they're blaming President Biden for it. Things that Governor Abbott himself has done, but they're going to find a way to blame President Biden for it. We have to stop playing politics with every issue and instead address the real issues people want to see addressed. We should be working on work permits for immigrant communities. We should be working on having more immigration judges so that we can address these asylum cases. We should be making sure that people have the ability to legally apply for citizenship. We can have order and safety at the border. But unfortunately, the same Republican officials who complain about the broken system at the border are the top people who block any kind of immigration reform. They are the arsonists and they blame the firefighters for the flames. They break the system refuse to let it be fixed, and then complain about it and say the word President Biden over and over again. We are not elected to office, spend all of our time playing presidential politics. We should be paying attention to what folks in San Antonio need, to paying attention to what working families need, instead of this constant anti-immigrant hysteria. Abbott has yet to sign it into law, but he says he intends to do it. He says he looks forward to sign it into law. If it goes into effect, which would be in about 90 days, I mean, I know there will be some challenges to that in the courts, and we can talk about that. But I want to talk about if it, if we give if the Republicans get what they want, if Greg Abbott gets what he gets what he wants out of this law and is put into place, how would that impact life in Texas? How would it impact people who do construction sites and restaurants and hotels and families, all sorts of industry that, whether they want to admit it or not, are highly dependent upon the labor of folks who are in the country without authorization. Look, any of us that have lived in Texas for more than a minute know when you walk into a restaurant, your food is being cooked by citizens and non-citizens. Everybody knows that when you drop your kids off at daycare, your kids are being taken care of by folks that are documented and undocumented. Anybody that steps into a classroom knows that that classroom is full of mixed status families. There is no way that folks like Governor Abbott don't know that. And so what they're trying to do is instill fear. They want people to feel uncomfortable because they're immigrants. They want 
to make themselves feel more comfortable being their best like they did something. And unfortunately, what they're going to do is start to hurt the economy, start to have folks wonder whether or not Texas is the right place for them. They're going to make us less safe because they're pulling police officers off of their beat, off of their normal work. And people in San Antonio and across the state aren't going to be any better off for it. Remember, being elected governor means that you are in the top position of public trust to be helping people out that are struggling, struggling paying the bills, struggling dealing with child care, struggling dealing with family issues. He is wasting an opportunity to actually do something useful for people. And instead, he's spending his time trying to make life harder, usually for working class folks who are just trying to make a living. So many of our families are mixed status where you've got citizens with family members, siblings that are undocumented, and now they've got to ha- add that worry to their plate. It's just so abhorrent. Greg Kassar is a Democrat and the congressman for Texas Congressional District 35, which covers from East Austin to West San Antonio. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm David Martin Davies. You can email us at texasmatters at tpr.org. There are past Texas Matters programs on our website at tpr.org. And you can download, rate, and subscribe to us wherever you get cool podcasts. And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.